This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And if we sound a little different than usual, that's because we've scripted this intro. And we've scripted it because the topic today is an emotional one for all of us. This week, we're marking the one-year anniversary of the death of my mother, Anne Rice. And we're doing it by bringing you a special encore presentation of one of our most emotional episodes. We recorded this tribute to Anne earlier this year, live on location, at Colleen Hoover's Book Bonanza in Dallas, Texas. We're so grateful to the conference's organizers, The Bookworm Box, for allowing us to put together a live recording before a packed audience of some of Anne's most devoted fans at one of the country's most popular reader conventions. Two of our favorite authors, best-selling romance writers Lexi Blake and Zio Axelrod, joined us as special guests to discuss Anne's lasting impact on fiction. And to hold our hands as we shared our own recollections (laughs) and memories of the woman we love so dearly. So, uh, get your tissue box handy, and apologies in advance if we ruin your makeup as we bring you this special encore presentation of our Anne Rice, a special live recording. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shockman. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. 
Let's have a big round of applause for Colleen Hoover and her amazing Bookworm Box staff for inviting us to be here today at Book Bonanza in Dallas, Texas. And another big round of applause for our wonderful sponsor, 1001 Dark Nights and Blue Box. I think the cue audience to applaud part of the script went off quite well. Eric, it's your line. I think we've, we've handled that very nicely. Okay, today we have gathered to reminisce about the legendary Anne Rice, famous author, my dear friend, and Christopher's mother. Joining us to talk about Anne's impact on the world of fiction are two amazing best-selling authors that we're also grateful to call our friends. Zio Axelrod is a USA Today best-selling author of contemporary fiction and romance. Her rock and roll fairy tale, The Girl with Stars in Her Eyes, landed on best of lists in Publishers Weekly, Pop Sugar, Entertainment Weekly, BuzzFeed, Amazon, Apple Books, and more. Zio, wow. Feeling competitive all of a sudden. <laughs> wow, no kidding, Maybe right? <laughs> Zio grew up in the recording industry and began performing at a very young age. When she isn't working on the next story, she can be found behind a microphone in a studio, writing songs in her home office turned recording booth, or performing under a different, not so secret name. Zio lives in complete denial of the last five minutes of Buffy with one very patient full-time indoor husband and several part-time supremely pampered outdoor cats. Please welcome Zio Axelrod. That was awesome. Can I have a clip of that just to have it yes. on my phone? For your website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our other distinguished guest, Lexi Blake, is the New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of over 100 romance novels. Her books have sold over three million copies. She believes in happily ever afters for everyone, that a glass of wine and a talk with a good friend can cure anything that ails you, and that dogs are love. We have here, dogs here. and cats. Lexi lives in North Texas with her husband of 30 years, three kids, and three super barky rescue dogs. Welcome, Lexi. So we thought we would start this way, and I'll, I'll be honest and go off script for a minute. We, we thought it would be less emotional for us if we made Zio and uh, Lexi talk first. So uh, we wanted to give them both the same question. You know, my mother had such a long career, and she left us so many books. But as someone who was very close to her, it's always fascinating uh, for me to discover when people first heard of Anne and how. So let's find out. Lexi, why don't you begin? Okay, I don't know if this would con be considered the first time I heard of her, but it's the first time I picked up a book of hers. Mm -hmm. And I remember it very, very vividly. I was at the University of North Texas, which also features into uh, the Mayfair Witches. She was a student there. Yeah, I, I was there in the early 90s, and they had this bookstore. If you go to it now, it's moved to the square, but at the time, it was this rambling group of houses that you went through, and it was called Recycled Books. It was brilliant. Um, and I was standing in the horror section, and there was Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. Um, I was very good friends with a, a young man who was also going to University of North Texas, and there were two copies, and we decided, let's read this, and we can, we can discuss it. We can talk about it. Now, that man ends up being my husband. He's, <laughs> he is hovering somewhere. But I, I just so remember 
like, I know this sounds weird, but it was like, like a almost darkened, and there was this little gold copy because at the time it was a, it was a paperback, and like, I was an English student, and so I was reading the classics, so I should not read genre stuff, <laughs> and. Luckily, I picked up a classic of the genre that day, and we went from there. And here we all are. Here we all are. Zio. Well, it's funny as you said bookstore, because it was the same for me. There's a famous bookstore in Philadelphia, um, Book Trader, that used to be on South Street, which is like the hip place to hang out. And you would go in there and browse, and it's one of those places where the books are stacked in random places, and so you never know what you're going to find. They have sections, quote unquote, but you don't know what you're going to find. So I'm walking around. I was 13 years old. And I'm walking around, and this book fell off of a stack. And I picked it up, and I have it here. And I brought it because the cover came off in coming here. It just came off. It's been intact all this time, but this wow. is it. Wow. It was Interview with the Vampire, is and mass you can market, for see the, the listeners at home, it's a mass market paperback of Interview with the Vampire. I think that's the cover of the either the mid-80s or the late 80s. Something. Or early 90s. I yeah. remember I was alive when they did that cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. So. <laughs> that's how old it is. That's how old. What are you trying to say, Chris? No, so, um, <laughs> so I, I picked it up, and I read it um, in, like, I think a day or two. Like, I just tore through it. And I gave it to my friend in high school, and she read it, and we passed it around, which is why it looks like this. And I have three copies of this book, so this one never gets touched until now. But um, we were so obsessed with it. It, like, opened a door and made the, those of us who were on the fringe of high school, it's because I was a freshman in high school, so I really was like, you know. And it made us feel like we had our own thing. We had a little coven. Mm. I was um, Lydia and Rebecca Shaw. And I had, I was like the sire, and I, I mean, we were, we had our whole little group, and it was all because Anne was like, "Hey, come on in. Here's a world that you can, you can be a part of." And That's yeah, wonderful. Eric, what about you? Well, um, I, my first real encounter with Anne was, um, it, it was also that sort of accidental uh, thing. I, somebody had, I was going through, probably the worst period in my life. It was, it had been, I was kind of run out of town. It was that sort of worst period. Um, people had used the fact that I was gay to sort of discriminate against me at a job and kind of screw me over and uh, gotten transferred to Orlando. Nothing personal if you're from Orlando, but <laughs> was not a happy, it wasn't where you wanted was not to a happy uh, moment. And I was living in a hotel and I was just, miserable and I was I would eat every night at a restaurant by myself and years before I don't know how many somebody I believe somebody they had they had these box sets of the first three um, and they were had a sort of little case and I think somebody who wor worked at Walden Books for Christmas one of my college friends um, had stolen it because you, they'd tear the covers off and send the covers back for returns. And so they didn't, any of them have covers on them. They were just three books in that little case and I had it. And so I was on my own to go to dinner. And so, and so I took Anne to dinner with me every night and she told me it was okay to be me. She told me that I was a thing of God and that I wasn't a monster and that I was okay, and 
I think a lot of the courage that carried me forward in life so that I could meet her and become one of her dear friends who, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have thought that was going to happen at alone at the dinner table, at the winter park, whatever it was, um, that, that that courage, a lot of it came from, I made the decision, you know, like, I'm miserable. I, the hell with this. There's nothing that's worth this. So I quit my job and drove to California. It was the year that Thelma and Louise had come out. I already had a convertible. <laughs> I you still have that goddamn I, convertible. I skipped, <laughs> I skipped the Grand Canyon adventure, obviously, but, um, but yeah, it was like, yeah, I'm going. You know, Brad Pitt might be there. Who knows? Um, or on the way, even better. Um, and and that that was my first. That's how I met Anne Rice. That's wonderful. You have. You want me to read the next line? It's your line. But I will. I will. Really brought. That I will endeavor. Home. Yeah. I will endeavor. That's why when the cover was off. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. took it out to show me and the cover was off and I started yeah. crying and I was like, oh no, oh no, we haven't even started talking yet. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. The Vampire Chronicles, The Lives of the Mayfair Witches, The Ramses the Dam series, at the time of her passing this past December, and left us with 37 books spanning multiple genres. And so the question we're going to tackle next might seem impossible to answer. If you could only take one of Anne's novels to a desert island with, with you, which one would it be and why? <laughs> <laughs> there are all wrong answers. And w- <laughs> There are no wrong answers. And worst luck to you, you're first. Oh, great. Well, it's actually an easy answer for me. Oh, good. Um, It would be The Witching Hour. And it is the book that I go to when I need education, escape, craft, imagination. Like, everything is in there for me. I get history. I get landscape. I get emotion, I get human interaction, I get everything. Everything that I need to reference of the world is in that book. And so, especially now as an author, I'm like, how do you craft a scene? Let me go back to The Witching Hour and see how you craft a scene and draw your reader in. It's just one of those books that I carry with me all the time. And no, obviously not because it's huge. But, you know, on my Kindle. <laughs> a thousand pages, right? <laughs> Enormous. On your Kindle. On yeah. my Kindle, I carry yes. with me all the time. It's just a go-to book for life for me. Once people say, as a romance author, they ask you, who's your favorite author? Which, and I always say Anne Rice, The Witching Hour, and people are surprised. But it's because mm. it is the book that it is. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Absolute masterpiece. I agree. Lexi. My answer is definitely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, I would actually take uh, The Tale of the Body Thief. Oh, oh. Wow, that's not what I was expecting. I know. Um, 
it is not the I, I don't believe it's the best book in the series. What it is is I it was the first time I really con- understood why I connected to this series the way I did. Um, it's the first time it really clicked in my mind that for me, I'm not interpreting this for everyone. Once you put a book out in the world, it, it becomes the readers and you get to pick what it means to you. For me, you can take the word vampire out and put the word artist in. Um, that The idea of that dark gift being creativity and, and the responsibility of when we put something out in the world, it can go good, it can go bad, it can go a lot of different ways. Because again, it's all open to y'all's interpretation. Um, I think that really clicked with me in this one when Lestat becomes human and faces that. And I also just love the fact that it's Lestat being Lestat. <laughs> I mean, and so I just want to tell people they don't know Tale of the Body Thief. Lestat has saved the world, basically, in a previous book, and the vampire world. And he meets a, a, a psychic medium who has the ability to switch bodies with him. So he gets to be human again. And contrary to the Hollywood version you would probably see, he really hates being human again. Eric called it the It's a Wonderful Life of Vampire Movies. I want to be a vampire again. I want to be a vampire, please. I hate going to the bathroom. You know. So that, you know. Um, but, he, but he likes nuns. Yeah, and he meets a nun and, of course, falls in love with her because he's Lestat. That's what he does. Um, I love that, though. The, the dark gift being a metaphor. The dark gift, which is the description of turning somebody into a vampire, either sometimes willingly and sometimes unwillingly, unwillingly. which he does again in that book, um, is a metaphor for so many things. Falling in love, coming out, all these different... Uh, people have been able to endow it with all these different things over the years, and I think that's why it's such a great concept. But, but that's the brilliance of it, is that you can, and, and this is what I would tell all my college professors who don't like genre fiction, is I could write tomes about what these books mean, yeah. about the secret hidden meanings in them, that even if she didn't mean to put them in there, they're there. That's the right. magic of a really well-written book. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, Eric, you're not getting out of this one. What's your book? Um, well, I... I have to say, just recently, I have reread. I'm, of course, going to, you know, not answer the question the way it's being asked. Of course, um, of course, because that's I our am still, after yeah. all, me. Um, I just finished rereading uh, uh, *Witching Hour* because the character Michael Curry in that book, for me, is the most autobiographical thing that Anne mm-hmm. ever wrote. Yeah. His description of himself and his life is the most Anne of any character in any of her books. For me, that's how it feels. I just, so I, it was a way to, you know, spend some time. Oh, God, don't do it. I um, thought I was going to be the To spend one. some time with an old friend uh, who I wasn't going to get to spend as much time with now, um, though I'd still talk to her plenty. Um, mm. Uh, but I have to say, I think if I was going to the Desert Island thing, mm-hmm. the one, which I just, God, I hate that question. Um, <laughs> one, who wants it. one? <laughs> I don't want one, anything. <laughs> one, have one cookie. Yeah, okay, <laughs> never mind. Yeah, and that's not happening. One potato chip for you. Um, uh, it would be um, Vampire Lestat. At the end of interview, I finished and there were these other books, and I went, well, how is that possible? Right. Because if you've read them, the end of interview is not promising. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
okay, well, I'll, how does she get out of it? How are you going to get out of this one, Anne? Um, right. and, uh, and it's just brilliant. There he is. I, I think Louis, Louis and, and Lestat are my favorite romantic couple in all of literature. And it, because I got to be friends with her in later years, and I think even punched it up a little bit for me. Because, she did. Because, <laughs> because, Eric will like this one, she said. Yeah, because I love them so much together. But so to have him come back and have him be the brat prince that he was really revealed to be as opposed to the kind of the heavy that he was in, well, in right, yeah. Interview Vampire. I mean, kind, I not really kind of. <laughs> well, I hated and, uh, the start of the That's POV for you. And, right, he comes back and he says, everything you heard, that was one version. That was just... Yeah, yeah. That happened. But, I didn't do that to But that that's baby. not how I remember yeah. it. And so, and so having that resurrection, having that, that wonderful character come back to life for me, literally, um, and, uh, and then do all of the th wonderful things that he began mm. doing thereafter. It's just, it's the, it's the door to everything else that happens in the Chronicles, and so I guess I would pick, uh, okay. pick that. That's good, and since I wrote the script, I don't have to answer this question, so that's how that's <laughs> Okay, okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. When I was about... Does not. When I was about seven, I was like, Mom, did you write Sleeping Beauty? Because like, there's like this fairy tale, and then there's this book that you wrote, and oh it's God. on the, it's in the library, and she was like, "You cannot read that until you were 21." <laughs> to which I said, "So let me get this straight. I'm going to be 18 years old, and I can take a bullet for my country, but I can't read my mom's BDSM erotica. What kind of America is that?" <laughs> so I marched my self-righteous little derriere down to the library. I take that book off the shelf. I opened it to a random page, and I put that book back on the shelf, and I haven't <laughs> taken it off since. We did dare you to read some of it on the show, and he did as much as he could, but it was not a substantial... To a page and a half, I got as... And listen, I, I listen, I'm here. I'm at Book Bonanza, man. I write steamy stuff. But when it's your mom and there's a whole tree made out of one sex toy, you can't go... It's hard to go there, so... I wouldn't take those to the desert island, but you know, I would probably take one that um, I'm not as familiar with, because believe it or not, there are some I haven't read. I haven't read The Feast of All Saints. I haven't read Cry to Heaven all the way through. So I would take one of those and try to have a, a, a new experience with it. Okay, on to the next topic. Um, I wanted to share three common misconceptions about Anne. Uh, and you know, these are not really grievance-driven, but they're things that I think have cropped up. Okay, they're a little <laughs> grievance-driven. They've cropped up in the narrative. There would be more than three if they were grievance-driven. There would be a lot more, but they, they're in a lot of coverage of her, and they're accepted as fact, and they're not really true. One is that Interview with the Vampire was not an immediate success. Interview with the Vampire got a respectable hardcover publication in 1975, and then there was, uh, got a terrible review in the New York Times, which really hurt her and which she felt was a very homophobic review uh, that doesn't stand up to the light of history kindly. And then there was this interest in it to be a mass market paperback, which was, I don't know how much the business really works like this anymore, but that was the, back then it was like, you could be published as a prestigious literary hardcover, but if they wanted you in mass market, it meant there was a whole nother territory out there they thought they could exploit, it was a different distribution system, your book had potential to be a major bestseller. And so uh, the advance for it, there was a bidding war, 
and she was paid a higher advance than Mario Puzo had gotten for The Godfather, and it was a disaster. And they called her one day to say they were pulping the book at the warehouse. And she never forgot that moment. So the next two books that she wrote were, okay, uh, my vampire book was not taken seriously. I need to be um, a, a, a serious historical fiction novelist. And so she wrote The Feast of All Saints, which was about the free people of color in, in New Orleans. And then she went on to write Cry to Heaven, which was about um, uh, the Castrati, and I always forget the century. Is it the 18th century or the 17th, 17th century? A very long time ago, which is how Anne preferred it. When it was still okay to do that sort of right, thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, long time ago. It's been a long time. Um, so, and Cry to Heaven got a rave review in the New York Times from Alice Hoffman, but it didn't really sell that well either. And Feast of All Saints, it didn't sell. These books weren't meeting their expectations with the publisher. But so quietly and alongside those books, Interview with the Vampire was gaining a cult following. You know, and I, I just think that's an important story to share with artists, with creators, that it's, there's such a thing as slow time. And everything in this business can be about how did it sell in the first week or the first two weeks. And things gain speed. I mean, we see that now with book talk, books that have been out forever suddenly getting a platform that they never had. So um, that, I think, is an important thing that I like to share. Um, the other, oh, we're supposed to do back and forth. Wait on your pitch. <laughs> but, you know, like, I just, I think that that's, um, people, when they report about authors and celebrities, they can make it look like it was just, it's the thing you always say, it's the biography school. It's, the, it's that, that TV show biography, and then she worked really hard and everything worked out, and it's like, mm, I wish yeah. that was how it went. You know, yeah. like, you, sometimes your success is belated and sometimes it never comes. You know, the, I always say the only way you can fail is to quit trying. Yeah, exactly. Like, you just keep, you go so far out on the limb that you can't get back. Right. Yeah. You know, just keep going further and further, and then it'll either work or it won't, and that's kind of the artist's lot in life. And yeah, and but the, yeah, so it is a misnomer to to, to say yeah. that that hard work is its own reward because, you yeah. know, ask Van Gogh, that isn't always how it plays out. Right, he lost an ear. Listen, but and 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 the thing too, the the level of ridicule and scorn that she got, right, or vampires. You're going to write seriously about vampires? That's absurd. These are horror movie tropes like this. This, a famous editor got the manuscript and said, the only note he wrote in response to the agent was, well, I just don't see this at all. Lunch? <laughs> Question mark. You know, and so it was a lot like that. Um, and when she did want to go back to it, she needed a different way in, as you pointed out, Eric, and she realized that the, the point of view she was in love with, the character that she thought could drive the series book after book after book was Lestat. And that's when the Lestat that we know was really born. Okay, item two, shifting to the superficial. Anne had a lot of houses in New Orleans, but she only had one home, and that was at 1239 First Street in the Garden District of New Orleans. Um, it's often reported that a building that she owned called the St. Elizabeth's Orphanage was her home, but she never spent the night there. She never spent a night under any roof, and usually when one of these homes comes up for sale, the real estate agents start to say, it's Anne Rice's house that we're selling. And I was like, that was not Anne Rice's house. Yeah, there was one in Dirt recently saying it was the estate selling it. And I actually wrote to them and went, Anne did not own this house at the time of her death, and she never lived there. Yeah, never, never lived there. She, she loved the idea, like the coven you were talking about. She loved the, the idea of building a coven with her family, and, and she wanted places that she owned where they could live and they could stay. But she didn't leave her room. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't leave her room. Um, 
third misconception, and maybe my favorite, is she did not dress goth, like ever. I mean, she would, there would be an elaborate costuming for a lot of signing events, but that kind of went away over time. That, but if the sun started to tilt just out of the noon position, she was like, can I put my nightgown on? <laughs> and one time she did it at the table, and you were there, Eric, and, and you said, well, can I, only if I get a nightgown too. Right, it's not fair if I don't get a nightgown and too. so she oh, got she up she got the table, one. and she got him a nightgown. I love it. And there's somewhere on the internet a picture we of have the two of us in of the, of the same, in matching white flannel nightgowns. I got her to sign mine, and it's hanging in my closet at the house. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was, Anne was, I, Goth. I'm not sure I ever saw her in anything but a, a flannel nightgown. She was not about dressing up. She would, and then as soon as it was, whatever it was was over, it was back to the flannel nightgown. She was also about wearing the same thing all the time. She wanted to, I've heard that about President Obama, that he said the reason that you wear the same thing when you're president is you have too much to think about. You just need to pick out a suit. And Anne was always thinking. So she was like, I'm wearing the same brooch and the same shirt and the same flannel nightgown, and that was it. Every day. So those are my three, uh, they're not too resentment driven, but those are my three big misconceptions. Obviously, I could come up with 20 to 30 more and we would be here all day. Yeah, some stuff that people say is just, there was one time I, I found a picture of some lady, I'm sure she's a perfectly lovely person, grocery shopping at, um, where was it? Um, oh, Bristol Farms. Bristol Farms in, in, West, yeah. in Beverly Hills. And I was like, this is A, not Anne. And, Anne at the grocery store? Are you kidding? Like it was so, a paparazzi photo. They were trying to sell it as Anne Rice at the grocery so store. So I actually joined whatever it was so that <laughs> I could write to them and say, this is, you know, perfectly nice picture, but this is absolutely not Anne Rice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio when I asked Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. All right, Eric. What? There was a moment 
where you realized that you and Anne were very good friends, and if you can keep it together. I don't know, I have no I promises about that. Ask you to talk to us about that moment. Um, okay, here we go. Deep breaths. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts. Um, Christopher and I have been friends for a, a long time. I, I was just thinking about it. I think it would be 20 years. 50, 60 years, I don't know, 70. <laughs> So you're when 50 or 60 years out? now? Yeah. Jaws, yeah. Like, this is not an age, that becomes an age crack about you. <laughs> I know. Just warning I'm you. I'm joining the crack. It's not just a crack yeah. about me. Um, it, I think it's 20 years. It's 2002, I think, is when we met yeah. and became so, friends. Yeah. So we were really good friends, and at a certain point, like, there was the, we, we had, I went to a Thanksgiving dinner at your house, and that was the, ta the, the dinner where Anne said to me, um, if I don't get up and go to bed now, I'm going to propose marriage to you. Because we were having that much fun at the table. It was just, when the three of us got together, it was just, you, Katie barred the door. We were gonna have a good time. Everybody else could go to hell. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we were very friendly with each other and I went for m a bunch of visits, but I always just thought, I'm Christopher's really good friend, and she's this really gracious Southern lady, and she's lovely to me when I go to visit, and, oh, and, uh, you know, and that's fine. That was as much as I was going to expect. She's famous and all of these other things, and, you know, she's a friend's mother, so, okay, we'll be friends. Um, she and I were closer in age than you and I um, are, um, but, um, but still, you know, okay, so... I think it was, I was there for a visit and we were talking about the movie Empire of the Sun. And it opens with the Christian Bale character singing this song. He's a little boy and it's called Swogan. We didn't know that at the time and the internet was not what it is right now. Um, you couldn't instantly find out everything with the touch of your phone. So we, were, we didn't know, but we loved the song. Da, 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 da. That's kind of the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, we had this conversation about, yeah, I really love that song. I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll have to try and find out and whatever. <sighs> so I went for my next visit. And I hadn't even really particularly remembered the conversation. I mean, I hadn't forgotten it, but it wasn't like share of mind. And Anne had found the piece of music. She had printed out the sheet music to it, and she had learned to play it on the piano. Anne didn't play the piano. And she played it for me when I got there. And I thought, oh my God, you, you really are my friend. You're not just my friend's mother. You are really, really my friend. I, I took a picture of it. We it's have her that. We'll post it on the uh, Facebook the, page, yeah. Um, with the cat, mm -hmm. the horrible Mirabelle. Mirabelle is in who the, hates us. The demon yeah. cat is in the picture. Yeah. Just to ruin I, the photo. Yeah. I had it made, probably, yeah, photo bombing. And I had it made into a painting that I gave to Christopher for one year. I gave them both my favorite picture of the other one um, for, for Christmas. Um, and uh, it is, but it remains as this moment. It's my favorite picture of her because it's the moment where I knew 
that I wasn't just, she wasn't just being nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's, so that's my, I did pretty well. You made it, you made <laughs> we, it. We got to the other, we Only got to the other side of that. Um, um, and Christopher, there was a story that we had talked about you. She told me this very recently. I didn't know this. I knew that this, is, this was her version of an incident of something that happened when I was a very young. And it was, she put me in my first preschool. And we lived in San Francisco at the time. We lived in a Victorian in the Castro District. And it, our lives could not have been more different than what they became when we moved to New Orleans. My father was a college professor. My mother was not making a lot of money off of her writing. Um, the, the, but she was writing, and the thing that my father always gave her was the space and the ability to write. He was the one that said, quit your job and try to write a novel, and Interview with the Vampire was born out of that. But this was many years after that, and they were determined to raise me in, I don't know if a non-traditional way is the right way to describe it, but let's say a very Bay Area way, a very Northern California way. And they took me and admitted me to this preschool where I got hit by one of the teachers on the first day. Now, granted, I had reached inside of her desk for star stickers, and I can remember vividly the sight of the stickers and thinking, I want those stickers, and I can remember this giant hand coming, and I remember after I got home, I reported this to my mother, and she said, what happened to you? And I said, well, I got hit. I reached in her desk, and she called that damn school so fast. And she just said, those teachers unloaded on me. They said, your kid is a disaster. He's behind everybody else. We don't know what to do with him. We, we, he, he's not developing, blah, 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 blah. They just, she just listened to them attack me. And she was in this sense of despair. And she said she, she sat down at the kitchen table with me, and I was coloring. And she looked at me, and she said, um, this is my treasure, and he's not going back to that school. And we're going to find a school that's right for him. And um, my father thought she'd lost her mind. My father was from, <laughs> my father was from Texas. He was like, "You go to the school you go to, and you make it work." And that's what happens. <laughs> like, that's what. That's how it works. And she she put me in this little school where you know nobody hit me, and. Um, I don't know how much we learned. We learned at a protest, because it was Northern California. It's a, it's a skill these and days. And then at one point she said, you know, I need for you to learn fractions too. I, I love that you're lo learning to love your fellow man, but we need some math in there. But she was, that was what she was about. She was not about settling for the lowest version of your circumstances. She was about, I mean, she, she, was, not, she was not about making do. She was always about transcendence, and if you cross paths with her, she would try to do what she could do to get you, we call it live your best life now, but that's not the terminology she would use. I mean, she would want you to strike out and explore your art. She believed in something called the hero's journey, you know, and she believed that there was a noble path for everybody to be living on as authentically as they possibly could, and the rules might not always apply to you, and I think that's why she wrote so beautifully about the outsider, and about um, people who felt like they didn't belong, because she really didn't feel like she ever really belonged. She often said, I feel like I don't have a gender. She, she was very, her sense of her gender identity was very um, fluid, you know? 
And her, ver her relationship with religion was very much about that. She was looking for something specific, but she was not going to be held back by the parts of it that she didn't believe and didn't agree with. And I just that idea of transcendence is what I'm always going to think about with her. That idea of just doing your best to try to rise above um, the, the limitations that other people want to set on you. And um, because we knew we'd be too emotional at this point, we're going to ask our wonderful guests to finish for us. And we've asked both Zio and Lexi to read us their favorite Anne Rice passage. Zio, why don't you begin? So I, I was going to read from A Feast of All Saints, oddly enough, but I decided to read from the beginning of The Witching Hour because one of the things that Anne did for me as a kid growing up with, in a disadvantaged situation was allow me to travel. She put me in places that I would never, I never thought I'd ever be able to go. By the time I went to New Orleans, decades later after reading her books, I felt like I'd been there already. And this was one of the reasons why. So stop me if this gets too long. The doctor had never been inside an antebellum mansion until that spring in New Orleans. And the old house really did have white fluted columns in the front, though the paint was peeling away. Greek revival style, they called it, a long violet gray townhouse on a dark shady corner in the dark garden district. Its front gate guarded, it seemed, by two enormous oaks. The iron lace railings were made in a rose pattern which must, with much festooned with vines, purple wisteria, the yellow Virginia creeper, and bougainvillea of dark incandescent pink. He liked to pause on the marble steps and look up at the Doric capitals, wreathed as they were by those drowsy, fragrant blossoms. The sun came in thin, dusty shafts through the twisting branches. Bees sang in the tangle of brilliant green leaves beneath the peeling cornices. Never mind that it was so somber here, so damp. Even the approach through the deserted streets seduced him. He walked slowly over cracked and uneven sidewalks of herringbone brick and gray flagstone under an unbroken archway of oak branches, the light eternally dappled, the sky perpetually veiled in green. Always he paused at the largest tree that had lifted the iron fence with its bulbous roots. He could not have gotten his arms around the trunk of it. It reached all the way from the pavement to the house itself, twisted limbs clawing at the shuttered windows beyond the banisters' leaves enmeshed with flowering vines. But the decay here troubled him, nevertheless. That just put me right there. Yes. Right there. You could feel it. You yeah. Could feel like the air. Yeah, yeah. Um, mine is shorter, but um, as a... As a kid who grew up very poor and who spent a lot of time in the library, even as an adult today, I feel like it's one of the best things I've ever read about books. It's from Blackwood Farm. And books, they offer one hope, that a whole universe may open up from between the covers, and falling into that new universe, one is saved. It's mm. wonderful. Any final thoughts, Eric Shawquin? <laughs> I do that to him every episode. As, and I always have the same answer. It's from Robert Louis Stevenson. It's, the world is so full of a number of things, I am sure we shall all be as happy as kings and queens, I like to add. <laughs> On that note, a huge thank you to everyone with Book Bonanza. And if anyone in the audience has recollections they'd like to share about Anne or questions they'd like to ask, Eric and I will be in Longhorn D at tables 100 and 101 in the signing area. As for our special guests, you can catch Lexi in Longhorn D at table 99, and Zio will be in Longhorn F at table 152. And for our beloved party people who might be listening to this podcast at home, 
please feel free to share your thoughts, recollections, and questions on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. And to our sound designer, Brandon Griffith, thank you for traveling with us to Dallas to make sure this all worked. And our two amazing guests, Lexi Blake and Zio Axelrod. We hope you enjoyed this special encore presentation of Our Anne Rice, a live recording featuring special guests Lexi Blake and Zio Axelrod. And once again, we'd like to thank Colleen Hoover, the staff at the Bookworm Box, and our sponsors, Blue Box Press and A Thousand and One Dark Nights, for helping us make this emotional episode a reality. Next week, we dig deep into our archives to bring you the voice of Anne herself. We'll be inviting you to travel back in time and experience Anne's very first live appearance on The Dinner Party Show. It's the first episode in a special holiday tribute series featuring some of Anne's wonderful interviews with the TDPS Network. One of the gifts of having such a famous and prolific friend is that we have her many interviews to keep his company as we celebrate Christmas without her for the first time. Because as my favorite J.M. Barry quote goes, God gave us memory so we could have roses in December. We miss you, dear friend, but you will always live forever in our memories. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Merry Christmas. This is TDPS.